Hey, the luck of the Irish be with you. And also with you and all of you online. I'm 11% Irish, according to my DNA, so I thought camo was kind of appropriate, you know? A little bit of green, not, not, not too much, okay? Hey, I want to tell you about last weekend. I, I got to go out and preach for my buddy Gene Apple. You've heard him here before. He preaches sometimes on Thanksgiving because he's got kids in Chicago, one of my oldest and dearest friends in ministry. And um, I, I went out to preach at Eastside Christian Church where he preaches. They've got a campus in Minnesota. They've got a campus in Vegas and several campuses around in, uh, in, in, in Southern California. Um, and, and so I went out on Friday. They got Saturday services like we do now. And uh, they, I went out on Friday because I, you don't want to mess with that, you know, flying all the way out there. So I'm supposed to leave at 1.20 in the afternoon. I got seven updates from Southwest Airlines. That's a record for me of, uh, oh, your flight is delayed. We left at 8 o'clock that night, okay, for a four-hour flight, you know, out there. And, you know. so, so anyway, I'm on a text chain with my family and I'm, you know, I'm complaining to them and they're acting like they care, you know, oh, it's really sad. And, and, and somewhere in the middle of it all, it hit me, wait a minute, <clears throat> I interned, I mean, it didn't hit me, I remembered this, but I, I interned at that church 40 years ago last summer. And it hit me how important that summer was to me and my development in 1982 and how, uh, you know, how, how cool it was that the church was still even in existence, let alone not only is, is it alive, but it's thriving and doing really, really well. And I was going to get to go back and, and you know, and, and preach a message, basically, that I, I kind of learned there 40 years ago as an intern. And, and I, I texted my family, and I'm like, you know what? I would ride in the back of a panel van with John Candy and his polka band to get there <laughs> if I needed to. Because it was that important for me, the passion that they instilled for me about having a church that reached people on the outside, okay? So it, it was 1982, um, and the uh, effects of the Jesus Revolution, which is a movie you should see, were still going on in Southern California. And, and, but I had grown up in the Midwest. I'd grown up mostly in Oklahoma in the 60s and 70s, where pretty much everybody considered themselves to be a Christian, okay? This is the inside. That's the outside, right? And it wasn't really about the inside or the outside, because everybody that I knew considered themselves a Christian. So the outside for us was really more about, you know, believing differently, you know, like about the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the doctrine of eternal security or, or bigger things like whether women should be allowed to wear pants to church. That, that was a big discussion, right? My mom told stories about showing up to choir practice on Wednesday night in pants for the first time and what a scandal that was, right? So, so there, were people, there were people on the outside of the door the, the people who were on the outside of the door for us in, in Oklahoma weren't really people who didn't believe in Jesus. They were people who believed in Jesus differently, right? Or they weren't acting like they believed in Jesus. So, so people on this side, you know, it was just that they acted different than us. That was really all it was. Because back then, you have to remember that 90% of the people believed in God. And, and still a large percentage of them do. But especially in the Midwest, most everybody believed in God, called themselves Christians. So for us, the outside was not about not believing in Jesus. It was just that they didn't act like they cared how Jesus wanted them to be or 
really our interpretation of what we thought Jesus wanted them to be. Like, maybe those people drank alcohol. Obviously, Jesus didn't want us to do that, even though he made wine and he drank himself. I, it never made any sense to me. But, but, but that's how we felt back then. So any efforts at getting people into the kingdom of God was really not as much about helping them meet Jesus as, or believe in Jesus or follow Jesus. It, well, I'll just say it this way. Christianity was about having people do better at acting like they were following Jesus. Okay? Does that sound familiar to some of you? I mean, you guys just need to do better at acting like you follow Jesus and follow Jesus like we say you should follow Jesus, right? So we had revival meetings, but they were mostly to help everybody get back on track with Jesus, which is fine. I mean, it was good. It was good for me. It was good for our church. But, but we'd pray for those people on the outside, you know, Joe the alcoholic or Mary the party girl or whatever, and we'd pray for them to come and find Jesus. But mostly that didn't happen because Joe and Mary didn't really think they were on the outside anyway. And come to think of it, maybe they really weren't, okay? Well, so what I'm saying is that if you put this illustration in front of my 1979 graduating class from Enid High School in Enid, Oklahoma, and asked them which side of the door they were on, I think almost all of them would say, oh yeah, we're in here. And unless they had been, you know, backsliding and they might have felt like they were on the outside. But if you ask them about Jesus and whether they believed in Jesus, if that's the, if that's the, the, the crux of being inside, they would have said, oh yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in. So then I go to Bible college in 1979 in Joplin, Missouri, and you know, it was pretty much the same. College was training us to go out and do ministry in the Midwest the way that you needed to do ministry in the Midwest. And to be clear, it wasn't their fault. That's just the way things were. If you were going to go to the Midwest, you were going to do that kind of church. So being a Christian, become, and I'm overgeneralizing you guys, but bear with me, okay? It was about being good at the huddle. Um, and it, it didn't matter if we rarely played the game, okay? Reaching people who were far from God was something that happened overseas, you know? So we huddled. And again, I'm generalizing, but we got really good at huddling. We started coming up with our own Christian schools and our own Christian, you know, bookstores, and we had our own Christian sports leagues, and we even got our own Christian music. While I, while I was growing up, that was the introduction of it. And it was not very good music, okay? Especially the, I mean, the early stuff. It's not, not, wasn't like today, okay? But because we were more about huddling than really playing the game, it, it started to me feeling like being in here, again, was about your behavior. And, and, and you know, okay, because we want them on the outside, on the outside to see our behavior and want to come and be like Jesus. But I'm like, they don't want to listen to this music. This music is terrible. And then they started telling me that I shouldn't listen to their music. And, and, and I was like, well, no. I'm going to listen to that music because it's a lot better. And they're like, oh, no, if you listen to that music, you might backslide and worship Satan. And then somebody figured out that if you spin the records backwards, right? Some of you remember the, it would, it would give you subliminal Satan messages. You know what I'm talking about? 
worship Satan, worship Satan. And so I went to my Sears and Roebuck turntable and I tried to make it go backwards and it wouldn't even do it. And then, and then Hotel California came out and I was like, all right, I'm done with you guys. I'm not getting rid of Hotel California. It's probably the best record ever made. Am I right? I don't care if there's a, a goat head on the front of it. I'm still not going to worship Satan. I don't care if Hotel California was about them selling out their souls or is about hell or whatever it is. It's just good music, okay? So back off. So back to my preaching in California. <laughs> last weekend, if you're wondering where this is going. It was May of 1982 when I loaded up the truck and I moved to Beverly. Uh, I, I, I loaded up the Olds and I, and I drove to Anaheim to spend a summer at Eastside Christian Church. And you know what I found in California? I'd never been before. I found a completely different culture because there were people in California that were actually like out of the Jesus thing. And they were proud of it. They just really didn't want anything to do with it, which was fascinating on its own. But what I really found fascinating was that that forced the Christians to decide if they were really in or not. Because, you know, for me growing up, everybody was just, you know, you're just a Christian because you're born in Oklahoma, you know, and this is just what, what it did. And, and, and it forced me to start looking at things in a different way altogether because I was interning with a pastor who understood all of this. And if you follow me on social, you know that Ben Merrill passed away just a few months ago. And Eastside was the largest and most admired church in our movement at the time. It actually still is, but even though it wasn't in the Bible Belt and it wasn't in a place where everybody considered themselves Christians. And it was there that I learned, this is why this was so important to me last weekend, it was there that I learned this, right? That some want to live within the sound of the chapel bell. So that was kind of like growing up in, in, in the church. I, I want to be close to the chapel bell. I got to listen to the Christian music, you know, and I go to a Christian school. I got to do all this stuff. But I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. And it was like, oh, I found my purpose. Because you know what, I, I, as I think back about it, I don't really think I was planning on going into ministry to babysit Christians. So I finally got my vision. So Denise and I got married. I did, we did seven years of youth ministry, and then we came here in January of 1990 to lead a mission a yard from the gates of hell. And for 33 years, that's what we've been doing here. And, and not only is this not the Midwest, there are actually people that are on the outside and know they're on the outside and, and, and we can reach them. And that's what I want to be about, you know, but, but also in that 33 years, the times have changed a lot. We've gone culturally from being a Christian nation to what we now call a post-Christian nation. It has been as though Parkview has been ahead of our time in regards to this door. And I know that God called us here and I am eternally and completely grateful that he did it because good grief, if I had to lead a church full of judgmental and legalistic Christians, I would probably be making crystal meth in my bathtub by now. <laughs> and that's my introduction to Mark chapter three. 
We're going to talk about the door today from Mark chapter 3. We're going through this quest thing all together as a, uh, as a church, and, and we're learning more about Jesus. And I want to talk about the door and being on the inside or the outside. Because honestly, if, if you understand this door, Jesus was facing an even bigger dilemma back in his day. Because in and out was literally about being born into the correct Jewish race. And it was all about keeping the rules. So you were in if you were Jewish and you were out if you weren't Jewish. And if you were Jewish, it was completely about keeping the rules, okay? And if you wanted to come into the door and you weren't Jewish and you were a guy, that meant you had to get circumcised. So the conversion rate was not really high. No more bacon and, and that, okay? And then Jesus comes along and he, and he changes the whole thing. Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was one of the rule things, right? And, and Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. This is not the point today, but one of the things that Jesus was fighting against was the idea that rules were what made you on the inside. So the way that he fought against that was that he literally broke on purpose one of their rules. Jesus asked them, which is it lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus because he healed a guy. They wanted to kill him because he healed a guy, but it was the wrong day to heal a guy, which should make you ask, how can there be a wrong day to heal a guy? And this is one of the passages that made me write the book, What Made Jesus Mad? If you haven't read it, I, I really think you should because it was really important to me. What made Jesus mad was any time anybody blocked access to the kingdom of God. Listen to this. Woe to you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So literally, the Pharisees are standing on the outside of the door, according to Jesus. They think they're on the inside of the door, but they're standing on the outside of the door. And even though they think they're on the inside, they're blocking the entrance for anybody else that wants to get into the door. That's the whole problem. So we go on. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd followed him from Galilee. I mean, he always had all these people following him, right? For he had healed many, so many that with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you're the son of God, okay? And, and he gave orders, strict orders, not to tell anybody about it. And Jesus went up on the mountainside and called those he wanted and they came to him. And he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons, okay? So, so, so this is what's going on. There's some things you need to know up front about this, all right? 
And, and this is a great scene in the chosen, in the new series of the chosen season three about, about the disciples being able to do this and, and just some of the people pushing around him and the, the bleeding woman being healed. I got I to gotta do a sermon around that one just so that you can, I can use that scene. It's just unbelievable. Um, so there's some things you need to know. First of all, Jesus' earthly family did not believe in him right away. I think that Mary did, but, but the brothers definitely didn't. You can imagine, can you imagine being Jesus' sibling? He did have brothers and sisters that are listed in the Bible, in case you didn't grow up understanding that. And Jesus loves his family, but his brothers don't believe him. Okay, the Gospel of John tells us this. Jesus' brothers said to him, and this is sarcasm, just want to give you that up front. Leave, why don't you leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your good works that you're doing. Okay, th th this is code for, hey, why don't you go away? For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, go show them to the world. Don't let the door hit you on your way out. For not even his brothers believed in him. And I mean... <clears throat> You gotta admit, if Jesus, we talked about this a few weeks ago, if Jesus knew at age 12 that he needed to be about his father's business, then that means for their whole life, <laughs> Jesus is, because he's the oldest one, Jesus has been telling them that he has a different dad than they do. And it's God. And I'm the Messiah. You know, you're an eight-year-old kid, that's probably a little hard to bite off, right? Little sibling rivalry, it kind of makes sense. But back to our text from Mark chapter 3. Not, not, Mark tells us that not only did his family have trouble with the whole being about his father's business, they thought he was crazy. Okay. Then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered because the door was always open, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Hang on to that eating thing. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he cray-cray. I know we don't say that anymore, but I still like it. I think it's a fun phrase, right? Any, anybody had a family member say that about them? Okay, it's just normal for me. And, and his mother and his brothers were standing outside, it says, in verse 31, and, and they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he said, well, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I mean, that sounds kind of rude, doesn't it? Evidently, he knows, okay, it was verse 20 and 21 when they think he's crazy. And, that, and, and I'm going to give you the middle of it in a second. In verse 31 through 35, they come and they, they're like, we got to do something about this. Evidently, he knows in there that they think he's crazy, that he's lost his mind. And it's kind of like the 12-year-old thing when he says, hey, mom and dad, I got to be about my father's business. That's why I'm here. But in this day and in this culture, you need to understand that this was a, dro a, a dropped bomb. It was a hand grenade into the culture to, to snub your family, okay? This is a time with arranged marriages. This is a time when you didn't even date on your own, right? It was a family decision, and you didn't just live with your nuclear family. Your brother and sister-in-law didn't live in Virginia. Everybody was together, and the extended family was together. And meals were so important. 
And they were not something that you just did with the friends and the neighbors to get to know them. Meals reinforced the boundaries of the family, okay? That's what the meals were for you to be in here with your own people. So the boss never said to the staff back in that day, hey, let's all go to Applebee's. It's Bourbon Street steak with the Oreo shake. <laughs> Whipped cream, girl, I got you, right? Two straws, one check, girl, I got you. He didn't ever do that, okay? You ate with the family and the people that were around you and the people in your own economic status and your own religious preference. This is why it was always bugging the Pharisees that Jesus was eating with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, right? I mean, he ate with Zacchaeus, he ate with Matthew, we know that. And he's always in here with those people. And at this point, he's not with his family. So this is a part of, one of the parts of Mark's gospel where he takes this story and he kind of puts the story on two ends like a, two pieces of bread and the meat is in the middle of the sandwich. And the middle of the sandwich, if we go back, and his family shows up in verse 21 and thinks he's crazy, and in verse 31 it says they actually are calling out to him and he blows them off. So what we see in the middle of this is that we understand that Jesus is embarrassing them because he's hanging out with these people that are not the right kind of people because this is about the boundaries, okay? And it's really important because we all want to do this. We all want to have our boundaries in here and we all want to close those boundaries off to everybody else, okay? What you need to know also, a couple of things, is to call somebody crazy in the first century was literally to call them, if you said he had lost his mind, which is what they said, is literally calling him demon-possessed. They're, they're really saying that Jesus is demon-possessed and they want to go get him and lock him up because they're that worried about him. And it's because the Pharisees have accused him of being demon-possessed because that's the de definition of crazy. So Jesus' family... The reason Jesus, the, the short version is the reason Jesus is blowing off his family right here is because the family is in the same category as the Pharisees who are coming at him and saying, hey man, you, you are, you've lost your mind. You're hanging out with all the crazy people and the demon possessed people. And the Pharisees said, you're doing it by the power of Satan somehow. And his family says, yeah, that, it must be the same thing. So again, why would his family be jumping in on this? Okay, well, for one thing, uh, if you're demon-possessed, you, you know, if you're crazy, you're demon-possessed. And if you're demon-possessed and somebody gets rid of the demon, they're an, they're an exorcist, right? Do you remember that movie? <laughs> okay. I recently read that Linda Blair just turned 64. Does that date you a little bit? She's still turning heads, though. Literally yesterday, I was like, this kind of sermon's kind of dry right here, and I, and I Googled exorcist jokes, and I don't recommend you doing that, but th that's where that came from, so you're welcome. J Jesus wasn't really an exorcist because the demons were literally just flying out as he got close, right? They were like, the, like when you were a kid and you were smoking and your dad showed up. I mean, they were like, ah! Son of God, don't hurt us, right? But, but this, is, this is demon possession. This is crazy. This is the definition. 
The second thing is that it said that he hadn't eaten. And, and I don't think Jesus was malnourished. I think the problem is that Jesus is hanging out with the wrong people. That Jesus is refusing to have meals with his family. And he's destroying the social structure that existed in that day. And honestly, if you think about the fact that Joseph has probably passed away by this time, Jesus is the head of the household in their culture. And he, he should be the breadwinner. He, he's the cohesive element of his family. But instead of doing this and, and this, he's hanging out with all the demon-possessed people. So here's the middle part of the story. Here's the meat of the, of the story. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from, check this, Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. Okay, that's okay. And Idumea. And from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when a great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Okay, now it's making more sense. It's not just the demon-possessed things we got problems with. Tyre and Sidon. Now we get it because they are the mortal enemies of the Jews. This is a story about how insiders become outsiders and outsiders become insiders. There's a whole lot of it. The whole part about Jesus is about that. Because the ancient enemies of Israel are Tyre and Sidon, and they're welcomed into the Jesus movement. And by the way, the people beyond the Jordan. I, I was just there with our trip in Israel. And Jordan is still the boundary marker between Israel and everything else. And Israel and Jordan. We went to the place where the first time we'd ever been to the place where it's really the place where Jesus got baptized in the Jordan River. And you go in on the Israel side, but the other side of the river, which is just a creek, basically, there were Jordanian guards with submachine guns on that side because you can't just go wading across and go on over to the other side. So, so the boundary markers had been broken. And the door of Jesus' kingdom, the door of Jesus' spiritual home was open to everybody else. And his family wasn't in there. And it wasn't because he ignored his family, it's because they didn't wanna be there. So what does that mean for us? Well, for most people, it doesn't matter what your religious commitments really are, family trumps religion, right? But, but in Jesus' culture, he said, no, that's not really, that's not really it. Our commitment to each other is in the kingdom of God, and that trumps your political or your familial allowance in any other way that you might attempt. And before you get all worried about it, the family comes around. I mean, I, you know, I don't think mom ever left. I think the brothers just kind of drug her along, but, but mom definitely is there at the cross, right? And she's a believer. That's why Jesus is up on the cross and he says, John, will you take care of my mom? Mom, John's going to take care of you. There are other brothers and sisters. It's not like she's going to be destitute. It was a spiritual thing that Jesus was doing because his brothers still didn't believe in him, okay? So is blood thicker than water? Not if the water is the water of the baptism into the spirit of God. But still, Jesus appeared, it says, Paul tells us, to James and then all the other apostles after he was alive. And we know that James was the leader of the early church and James wrote one of the books of the New Testament. So they came around. I mean, you got you to gotta think that seeing your brother die on a cross and then show up a few days later would kind of change your perspective, 
right? Dude, you really did have a different dad. Wow, this is crazy. But, but the point here, the main angle from Eastern culture is about boundaries, because it was all about boundaries, and we always get locked into our little boundaries. If you were close to something or someone, you were an insider, and if you were far away, you were an outsider. So, so think about like the temple. It was like if you were a, if you were a Jewish man, you got to be as close. The Holy of Holies was where God was in his form. And if you were a Jewish man, you got to be as close as you could be. And then if you were a Jewish woman, you could be there. And then everybody else had to come in over here. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Outsiders are insiders. He said, and by the way, the veil was ripped when Jesus died so that all of us had access into Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, not only are, the, are, are, are all the Jews welcome to come in, even the ones from Tyre and Sidon are welcome to come in. And at another point, I think something we miss a lot, Jesus says, I wish you'd all just be like little children because little children are the ones that really get it. They're, they're able to come in even though they couldn't come into the temple. Tyre and Sidon and even people who used to be possessed by a demon. Because you see, religious people thought that if you had a demon, you must have invited that demon in somehow, Right? You know that's why we still say bless you when people sneeze, right? That's gesundheit, means God bless you because they used to believe that when you sneezed, there, were, <laughs> there was an opening for the demons to come in. So you would say gesundheit. That's, that's how the whole thing happened. So there's this parable that Jesus tells later on that describes to me this whole boundary thing, all right? Um, and, and it, it says that he told it to some who were confident of their own righteousness. In other words, to those who thought they had this boundary thing figured out and they were definitely in and everybody else was definitely out, he told this story, all right? He looked, he, to those who looked down on everyone else, oh my goodness, to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Yeah. That wasn't just happening in Jesus' day, it happens all the time, right? Here's, here's what Jesus wants to say to me when I'm confident of my righteousness and I look down on everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> Aren't I awesome? I'm not a robber or an evildoer or an adulterer or even like this tax collector. I just need to remind you, God, in case you've forgotten, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. And I, I'm, I'm actually sure that at this point, Jesus just was like, okay, I'm done with this. This guy's driving me nuts, even though he's making this whole story up. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Some people think that they're part of Jesus' family just because of their connections. Or they're maybe good at following the rules. But really, Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers? It's those who listen to my teaching and do my will. 
You can actually, in other words, Jesus is saying, be out when you think you're in. And you can actually be in even though you think you deserve to be out. So family relationships, your, your religion of origin, etc., it doesn't get you in. Who are my mother and brothers? Jesus even said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Can your earthly family also be your spiritual family? Absolutely. I hope that happens. I, my, my children are, and I, my grandchildren, that's my biggest prayer to God. And that's something that I want to be a part of their life so that it happens. But they've got to decide that they want to be in. You see what I'm saying? So it begs the question, how do you get to be in? Right? What do I need to do? Jesus said, those who hear the word of God and obey, they're the true family. And, and how do you obey his will? Jesus tells Nicodemus, who's a great character in the Chosen series, who, who's, who's like, this is, this is my impression of Nicodemus. He's like, the, the whole time, up until the end, the whole time, and we know he comes to Jesus, but he's like here, he's looking in, he's like, I really want to go in, I really want to be there, but I, I'm a Pharisee and I just don't know if I can do it. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the will of God is to believe in the one who sent him. Eight times the word believe is in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is the one that has verse 16. It says, for God loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him from Tyre or Sidon or beyond the Jordan or the demon possessed or the little kids or the tax collector or the prostitute or whatever, whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, could come in and be in the kingdom of God. That it's not about the rules, it's not about where you were born or how you were born or how you do things. It's just really about whether you want to come in or not. And Jesus explains later to the disciples in John 14 that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. So how do you get in? You believe. That's it. You do what Jesus wants. You come in and hang out and have dinner. How do you get to the outside? Try to get Jesus to do what you want. Let's pray. God, thank you for this place. Thank you for last weekend being at Eastside. Uh, I don't know, it just, it just hit me so hard. 40 years. Lord, I'm praying that there's some young person listening to me right now, maybe online, one of our campuses, whatever, is grabbing a hold of this message is grabbing a hold of the idea that it's not about who you are or, or what you do. It's just about believing in Jesus. It's just about following Jesus. And that 40 years from now, <laughs> hopefully I'll be gone. But that 40 years from now, it's, they, they stand up in this place, in this pulpit, and they proclaim this same message and that Parkview is still proclaiming this same message and I just want to ask that you would be with us and keep us true to that for those who are confident in their own good works and want to 
pray to you about how great they are. Forgive us when we do that. We all come to you as tax collectors today, beating our breasts and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, so that you can exalt us and we can come in. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.